0: How's it going, everybody? You're listening to The Ravensburg. I'm your host, Dahi, and this is the number 6 episode of our segment, Tales of the Unexplained, where I'll be talking about some of the various aliens, cryptids, uh, semi-mythical creatures, spirits, and other entities that go bump in the the night. Today, we're going to be discussing some cryptids from Germanic and Scandinavian folklore. More specifically, we're going to be looking at some of the most well-known cryptids and creatures from Scandinavia and Iceland. The Draugr, the Holdar, the Nucker, or known as Nixie, in Iceland's Evil Whales, and one that's very personal to me, the Wild Hunt. Now, a quick disclaimer before I begin. This series is comprised of folklore and urban legends. The existence of the cryptids and creatures and entities featured in these episodes are, as of this recording, currently unconfirmed by the scientific community at large. As such, any and all opinions I may reach in this segment are mine and mine alone, unless explicitly stated otherwise. It's quite possible that you may have heard different versions of the legends and stories I may retell in this series, so if you feel that the version that you heard or may even have experienced is different to the one I tell, please bear in mind I'm just a storyteller. I will try my best to cross reference the different versions of the legends and the stories, so if I miss out on something you consider to be crucial, that is only on me, that's on no one else. Also, this episode of The Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings body harm mentions, animal predatory behaviour mentions, being hunted mentions, wailing mentions, undead mentions, necromancy mentions, supernatural themes, sex mentions, urban legends, folklore, and potentially frightening stories. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Right, now that those are out of the way, let's get this party started. So first on the list is the Draugar. Found across Scandinavian folklore, Draugar are a type of undead creature. More specifically, they are once known as a revenant. A revenant is an undead creature that retains its intelligence and personality after becoming undead, while also gaining the associated powers with being undead, such as a the strength, the enhanced durability, etc., Now, obviously, a zombie or reanimated corpse is already a terrifying concept. There's countless pieces of zombie media that attest to that. But a member of the undead with an immortal intelligence and its own original personality? That is scary. Now, what makes Draugr even more bone-chilling is the fact that, according to the sagas, there are very few definite ways to take a Draugr down and make them stay down. And one of the, all the different methods agree on, one thing they all agree on is the fact that the head needs to be removed from the body or outright destroyed. One method I know of states that once the Drago has been decapitated, you must immediately place a head in between the buttocks of the corpse. For a really great representation of this, check out the film The North Wing with Alexander Skarsgård. It's got an amazing scene where this actually happens, showing that they did actually do their research for the film. Another method calls for the immediate burning of the corpse following decapitation and then sailing out to sea and scattering the ashes onto the waves. Now, some of you might be wondering, Dahi, if Drago are so dangerous, then where do they come from? Well, there are a few main ways to create a Drago. First, there's a classic cursed item method. Uh, this way involves a nobleman or I might remember a loyalty binding his soul and the souls of his loyal retainers to the, the weapon, most often a sword. In return, the sword becomes insanely powerful, but it also has a few restrictions placed on it. The most well-known example of this method that I know of is the Skofnung sword. Originally belonging to King Hrolf Kraki of Denmark, he imbued the, soul, the blade with his soul and the souls of his twelve berserker bodyguards, forever damning them to the curse of being Draugr. In return, the Skofnung sword became arguably one of the sharpest, hardest, and most deadly swords in Norse mythology able to cut through nearly any armor and shield that wasn't dwarven crafted as if they were made of tissue paper. In addition, any wound inflicted by the Skoffnung sword on, a, on any entity will not heal unless the healer places the wound in immediate proximity with the Skoffnung stone. The wet stone is a paired item with the sword. However, the restrictions on the Skoffnung sword are pretty severe. It cannot be drawn in the presence of women or girls, and the wielder must never allow this hilt to be in direct or even part, partly in sunlight. If that happens, the blade will crumble and the sword will essentially just be useless. Method number two for creating a Terauga is, in my opinion, as a Norse-Celtic pagan, pure insanity. But according to the sagas, it can be done. See, in Norse culture, the, ba- the goal was to die bravely. Note that I said bravely. There, not die in battle. It's a common misconception that to gain access to Valhalla or Falkranger, whether it's you really great afterlife in Norse Mythology, you had to die in battle. Like I said, common misconception. According to the sagas, you had to die bravely, sure, but not necessarily in battle. Theoretically, someone who dies from cancer after fighting it for years or someone who dies saving someone from a, I don't know, like a sinking ship or a, or a house fire, that would make them eligible to be taken to the halls of the slain. Now, one thing I need to make absolutely clear here is that if you are chosen by the Valkyries to go to one of these two Afterlives, then number one, it's a huge honor. Like, literally, this was the main goal of most Viking warriors was to go to these Afterlives, so it's a big deal. And secondly, Valkyries are literally choosers of the slain, analogous to the freaking Grim Reaper in Christian mythology. As such, you do not ever question a Valkyrie's judgment, and you certainly... Do not try to resist being taken to the halls of the slain, because you will lose. Best case scenario in that situation, you get knocked out and taken to Valhalla or Vanga against your will. Worst case, you fall into Ginnungagap, the primeval void that exists between the branches of Yggdrasil, the world tree. You fall into that. There's no cosmic do-over. You will be forever lost in the abyss. Point here is, do not mess with the Valkyrie. Got that? Good. Now, imagine you're a warrior on a battlefield, so wrapped up in your bloodlust and frenzy that you can't tell friend from, from foe. If you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you'll have heard me describe this state in the episodes on warfare throughout history on Viking Berserkers in the past. This is called the Berserk Ganga Frenzy, and it's the or- not just the origin of the term Berserk, it's also what made the Berserkir and Ulfathnaar so deadly as fighters on the battlefield. In tha- In some, thankfully rare, Cases, the sagas tell us that some of these Berserker warriors actually fought off the Valkyries. Now, let me say that again. These nutcases fought off literal choosers of the slain and won. And after that, they're cursed to live for eternity, forever lost in the Berserker frenzy. Now, I am of the opinion that immortality would be the worst curse possible. Like, imagine being forced to live on immortal while your friends and family die around you. For me, that would be the worst punishment imaginable then imagine being permanently stuck in that battle-lust frenzy. That would just be, that'd be pure torture. So anyways, cryptid number two is the Hulda, otherwise known as Huldra. The Hulda are known to reside in the forests of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. In Sweden, they're known as uh, the uh, Hugsro. Sorry if I got that pronunciation wrong, Swedish is not my first language. And uh, their Icelandic counterparts are known as Hulduford. The holder in Scandinavian folklore are a type of keeper or warden of the wilds, especially of the forests. Several subspecies include the Huera and havsfru, both associated with water, and the Bergströ, which is which say reside in caves and mines. As befitting guardians of the wild, they have a complicated relationship with humans. Sometimes their holder can be beneficial, especially if treated with extreme respect. Other times, they could fill the role of the eventual seductress in seducing humans and then killing them. So, how do you identify one? Well, the term holder, which is spelled H-U-L-D-E-R, only applies to the females of the species, with the males being known as Huldrekal. The males show up only in Norwegian folklore, and even then, they don't show up that often. So, for the sake of the storytelling, I'm going to use the term holder to refer to the species as a whole. Anyway, a female holder can be identified in a few key ways. Uh, firstly, they are amazingly, jaw-droppingly beautiful. Secondly, they often, but not always, have an animal's tail, most commonly that of a cow or a fox. And thirdly, they often, but again, not always, have a back resembling a hollowed-out tree. Now, as I said earlier, sometimes a holder can be malevolent towards humans, and this could take place in a number of ways. According to Danish folklore, Holder would live in areas with plenty of moss, and at dawn, when the mist was thickest, they would be seen to dance on top of burial mounds. If a man saw them, he would be enthralled by the dancing and would go join them. Problem is, often the Holder would dance him to death, as time slows when dancing with them. For the man, only a few hours would seem to have passed, but in reality, years, maybe even decades, would have passed in the real world. After leaving this dancing circle, the man ages in a split second and dies. If, however, a holder kidnapped a human man, the human would be used for sex. Now, men who had sex with a holder would either die from the exhaustion, or they would go insane slowly. Now, according to Danish folklore, the rule of thumb is the more time you spend with a holder, the worse it gets for you. But, for certain people, especially if treated with the utmost respect... Holder could actually be beneficial. For instance, charcoal burners in Scandinavian Forest would often be on yeah, on duty for long hours burning the charcoal, and the idea was that if they fell asleep, especially if they left gifts out for the holder, the holder would basically relight the fires and wake them up, making sure they're like going, "Hey, you guys stay focused here." So, if you treat them with the again the utmost possible respect then they can actually be beneficial. But all the same, if you see a bunch of really attractive women dancing on a burial mound in early morning, do not see them. Do not go near them. It will end badly. Encrypted number three is encrypted from Germanic and Scandinavian folklore, the Nixie, also known as the Nucker or Nax The Nixie are a race of water spirits commonly associated with rivers, and they often appear in either the form of either the horse or or a very attractive man or woman. In human form, they often appear, like I said, as a very attractive man or woman, dressed in elegant clothes, playing the violin with an otherworldly skill in, while standing in a brook or a waterfall. The other main form is that of a white horse, again, standing peacefully in the waterfall of the stream. Now, in some stories, especially the German stories, the Nixie are actively malevolent towards humans. They attempt to lure a human on, into the water, whereupon they drown them and consume their flesh. However, in other stories, they are harmless and even friendly to the protagonist or the story. Sometimes they could travel a short distance from their by by water, but a Nixie can always be recognized by the wet hem of their clothes in human form. Now, as I just said, there are some stories where the Nixie are harmless, and there are two particular variants found in Sweden, known as a Stormkarl in Sweden, and in Norway, known as the Fossegrim or Grim, who, if appropriately approached by a musician, will teach a musician to play so deeply that the trees, dance, and waterfalls stop at their music. These modern Scandinavian names are actually derived from the Old Norse word nöker, meaning river horse, and thus the Nixie became known as the Man in the Rapids. In these stories, Storm Karl and Fosse are almost always exceptionally attractive males. Bottom line is, if you see a hot guy playing a violin in a stream in Norway or Sweden, if you approach him respectfully and ask him very politely to teach you music, then he'll do that. But if you see him in Germany, give him a very wide berth. Now, cryptid number four is actually an entire class of cryptid, and it's a rather surprising one. In Icelandic folklore, there are a race of demon whales called the Ítlaveli. This name literally translates as evil whales, and they are not messing around. According to their stories, these things are the definition of evil. Living only to hunt down and sink human ships and eat the crews, whether or not those crews and those ships are whaling ships... These demonic whales are so evil that tradition in Iceland to use euphemisms for their names while at sea, because if a sailor or seafarer says the names while out on the ocean, that whale will hear it and hunt them down and sink them before they can reach safe harbour. They are so evil that if, by some miracle, a whaler is actually able to kill one, the demon whale's flesh will disappear from the cooking pot, and their blubber and oil will go rancid the second the whale dies— meaning that they cannot possibly be used for any purpose that benefits a human. Now, as I mentioned, they, these are an entire class of cryptid in and of themselves, and as such, they are, there are a bunch of different types. For example, the most well-known, but perhaps, and perhaps the most widely feared, is the Rosvalur, the horse whale with huge red eyes and a main, red mane and tail. However, other types are included, but not limited to, the Raudkimberger. Uh, the red comb, uh, who is... Uh, sorry, that's my bad. The raudkimbingur. The red comb, which is especially cruel and bloodthirsty by even by the evil whale standards, apparently if you manage to escape it, it will die of frustration. The musheveli, the mouse whale, which has uh, legs and a mouse-like face, will actively clamber onto the beach in pursuit of you. The styrkul. The Jumper, which leaps high into the air and quite literally pile-drives ships into splinters. The uh, Kjellhungur, the Shell Whale, which has got a uh, a shell-like carapace and sits in the paths of boats in order to let them get wrecked on its hide. The Sverdvarur, which is the Sword Whale, which slices through boats with its gigantic razor-sharp dorsal fin. The Lungbakur, the heatherback, which has growths on its back similar to plant life and is so huge that sailor's mistake for an island. As soon as they step foot on it, it sinks beneath them, dooming them to a watery grave. And the Nautveli, the ox whale, which specifically targets cattle, luring them into the sea with its bellows before ripping them apart limb from limb. Now, if these creatures are such bad news, well, how can you protect yourself or, or avoid them? Well, all evil whales have a common enemy, the Sterep... Uh, uh, sorry, give me a second. I'm going uh, to butcher this pronunciation, but I'll try anyway. The Sterepereidur, the Great Blue Whale, who is a protector of humanity on the waves. If you're stuck on the ocean and one of the evil whales are near, then appearing to the Great Blue Whale is, according to the law, your best bet. However, there are a few other ways of deterring them, including when not limited to using certain substances, such as the herb angelica, sheep dung, or fox testicles, all of which the evil whales find absolutely abhorrent in smell, and using loud noises and barrels to distract them so you can get away safely. Now, the final cryptid I'm going to talk about today is one that is very important to me as a Norse Celtic pagan, and for good reason. It's the wild hunt. Now, if you're familiar with the Witcher franchise, then you're probably aware of the Wild Hunt in some sense, even if only as a name in the third game of the series. Now, on a side note, if you haven't heard uh, the Witcher franchise, go check it out, it's awesome. I'll be doing an episode on Literary and Loving It soon on the Witcher franchise, so stay tuned for that. Anyway, the Wild Hunt is a group of spectral riders that roam across the sky every full moon path of the year, often between midwinter and midsummer. Now there are a bunch of different versions, and Celtic stories of Gwyn up Nod in Wales and of Hearn the Hunter in Northern England, to the Germanic and Scandinavian versions led by Odin himself, and those are the ones we're going to be focusing on today. In these stories, Odin leads a great host of spectral hunters across the sky, hunting anything they consider to be fair game. These hunters, mounted on ghostly horses and accompanied by phantom hounds, are unstoppable and merciless in their pursuit of their quarry, and they are not to be taken lightly. According to the law, if they see you on a night when they're hunting, they will offer you a choice. Either join them in the hunt, or become their prey. Both choices, however, are very bad news. See, if you choose to become the prey, then you're effectively signing your own death warrant, because these guys will catch you, and they will make you pay. However, if you agree to join the hunters, you will ride with them for that hunt and every hunt thereafter for the rest of your life, going mad in the process. And when you finally do die, your, whole, your soul will become part of the hunt permanently. So essentially, you're choosing between painful, torturous death on the one hand and madness and eventual eternal damnation and enslavement on the other. Not ideal, is it? Now for the good news. There are a few main ways to avoid the hunt's offer without insulting them and they are fairly simple to execute. And there's even a way of getting out of having to join the host for more than one hunt. So here are the ways I've heard of to avoid becoming one of the hunters. Number one, stay indoors on nights of no full moon, or at the very least, stay on your own property. It's the most effective of the solutions and for good reason. It's the simplest. You can't be offered the statistic choice if you're outside if you aren't outside. If you must be outdoors, make sure you have walls and a strong gate to act as a, a severe barrier. If you absolutely, positively have to go outdoors and off your property on nights of a full moon, then either A, walk in front in the middle of the road. Every single store I could find on the Wild Hunt agrees that they, could, they cannot offer you the choice if you are in the exact middle of the road. Or, or and, uh, carry some iron and some bread with you. See, Odin often walks around the nine worlds disguised as an old one-eyed man in a blue coat with a grey broad-brimmed hat, accompanies by his two hounds. The iron is to offer Odin as a gift, and the bread is for his hounds. If the hounds approach you, then throw in the bread, and Odin will not offer you the choice, because you show him respect. If Odin approaches you, give him the iron, and he will leave you alone. However, and this part is crucial here, treat Odin with the most respect you've ever given anyone in your life. If he even thinks you're insulting them, well, take it from me as an expert in mythologies, becoming the prey of the wild hunt would be a mercy. Now, like I said, there's also a method, well, technically two methods, of, us, of getting out of the, the obligations to join the hunt if you go on one hunt with them. That way is that it, it, when you leave the hunt, the most common reward you get after you first hunt is a leg of the beast that they were chasing. Now, this leg cannot be gotten rid of. No matter how many times you try, no matter what method you try to get rid of it, it will always come back to you. And it's often a serious sign of very bad luck. It's uh, In some stories, is actually the focal point that causes the madness. So there are two main ways I found out of how to get rid of this leg and return it to a hunt without insulting them. Number one is have a priest bless it because that will instantly negate the null and void factor, but apparently that's very difficult to do for a priest, because this thing does not want to be blessed. Number two is when you're given it, ask the hunt for some salt to go with it. Now, being, for want of better term, phantoms, ghosts and that have a real aversion to salt. They cannot go near it, and... There's different method- reasons for why. For instance, vampires can't go salt because they're what's known as erythromania where they're obsessed with counting and they have to count each individual grain of salt before they can move on. Other times say that salt is an active barrier against demons and ghosts because they physically can't cross over it. The point is that the hunt cannot offer you salt because they physically can't interact with it. And this one fact means you get out of joining them again. If you're saying, hey, can I get some salt with this... I don't know, haunt your beast, they'll go, okay, fair enough. You don't uh, meet the requirements for joining the hunt. Even though you hunt it really well, wish you all the best in your endeavors. So anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Gahi. You've been awesome. And I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.